Spurgeon, he he said this once, and, and I've, I've become a real fan of this um, idea. He said that a preacher needed to have a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I truly believe that we can't diverse, divorce culture and what's going on in our culture from and everyday living from the Word of God. Now, much like we would say that we don't take science and religion, so to speak, and separate them when the Word is God is the creator of all things. And so in science, it's a discovery of who He is, and it's a leading to go towards Him. And so with that being said, I uh, was prompted uh, in this podcast that we're going to do called The Signet Ring to get into a, uh, a book that was written by Ann Fleming. I don't know if you've heard of Ann Fleming, but he was the writer of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, a child novel that was turned into a film. And it's really, really amazing you know, story. And uh, we've watched it with the kids and it's, it's really, really enjoyed it, especially because he makes a a car turn into an airplane and I can't really think of many things other than that that I would like to do personally so I really enjoyed that and but M. Fleming also wrote wrote a series of novels and I think uh, you would be very familiar when I say the name James Bond and it's uh, one particular one that I want to go through in this, this episode uh, that he had written it was his 11th novel and his 12th book uh, You Only Live Twice the story of You Only Live Twice is a part of what's called the Blowfield Trilogy. And Ernest Blowfield is, or Ernest Stavro Blowfield, is like the chief nemesis or chief villain in the uh, Bond series. And Blowfield in this, in this story, this one's going to start up when James, he had married uh, Tracy Bond and uh, Blowfield had, had her uh, murdered. And so uh, James Bond had got into drinking and gambling heavily. He started making a lot of mistakes in his assignments. And so as a last resort in the book, and uh, just spoiler alert because I'm going to spoil the book, he sent on a a semi-diplomatic mission. And what's really interesting and struck me when I began to read this novel was, uh, you know, we all know James Bond is 007. But uh, they're going to take away his 007 identifier and give him a new number. And the number they're going to give him is 7777. And if you do any kind of numerological looks at that number, it's really interesting to me, but that number actually means it is finished or it is done. And so Bond is entering into like a terminal moment here of this idea of it is finished. And he's going to pin this little, I believe they call them Tanakas, or it's like a poem in the story. And it's, it really is, highlights the, uh, the theme of the whole entire narrative. And it's one that I wanted to review uh, with you today. It's, he says this in, in his little poem that he uh, pins. You only live twice, once when you are born and once when you look death in the face. And so in the novel, he's sent on this semi-diplomatic mission, and he's going to be challenged by the head of the Japanese Secret Service to kill a man by the name of Dr. Gunthram Shatterhand. And Shatterhand is Ernst 
Stavro Blowfield, you know, this arch nemesis. So he set out on a revenge mission to kill him and his wife, Irma Bunt. Now, the novel is going to deal on a personal level with the change in Bond because he's going to go from a depressed man in mourning to a man of action bent on revenge. And then he's going to go, he takes on amnesia and he lives with a Japanese fisherman. And so Fleming, this is kind of setting up. So in the plot, the wedding day, the murder of his wife, Tracy, and that's in the book on her novel on Her Majesty's Secret Service, he begins to let his life slide. Again, he's drinking, gambling heavily, making mistakes, and turning up late for work. And his superior in the Secret Service, M, has been planning to dismiss Bond, but he decides to give him this last chest opportunity to redeem himself. And so he's going to go on this uh, mission. And the reason why he's renumbered is 7777 also is the mission that he's being placed in is impossible. And so to convince the head of Japanese intelligence service, Tiger Tanaka, to provide Britain with information from radio transmissions captured from the Soviet Union, which were codenamed Magic 44, in exchange, the Secret Service will allow the Japanese access to one of their own information sources. So Bond's introduced to Tanaka and to the Japanese lifestyle by a uh, Australian intelligence officer, Deco Henderson. And so when he raises up the purpose of the mission with Tanaka, it transpires that the Japanese have already penetrated the British information source, and so literally Bond has nothing left to bargain with. Instead, Tanaka asked Bond to kill Dr. Gunthram Shatterhand, who's operating a politically embarrassing garden of death in a rebuilt ancient castle on the island of Kushu, and people flock there to commit suicide. After examining photos of Shatterhand and his wife, Bond discovers that Shatterhand and his wife are Tracy's murderers, you know, his wife, and Ernst Stravo Blofeld, which was Ernst Stravo Blofeld and Irma Bond. So Bond gladly takes the mission and keeps his knowledge of Blofeld's identity a secret so that he can extract revenge for his wife's death. Made up and trained by Tanaka and aided by former uh, star, Bond attempts to live and think as a mute Japanese coal miner in order to penetrate Shatterhand's castle. And Tanaka renames Bond Taro Todoroki for the mission. So he infiltrates this garden of death and the castle where Blofeld spends his time dressed in the costume of a samurai warrior. And Bond is captured and Bond identifies him as a British secret agent and not as a Japanese coal miner. What's interesting about Ernst Blofeld is, is that he, the, the one whom uh, James Bond is going to end up killing in the castle, is he had established an organization called Spectre. And Spectre, uh, get this, is a, a group of 21 different leaders, himself being one of those. Uh, Spectre stands for the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. Um, it also means a visible incorporeal spirit, especially one of a terrifying nature, a ghost, a phantom, or an apparition. 
And so what he's done is he established this global organization. He's placed himself in first place, and he has 20 other um, uh, leaders under him. Now, why is this significant to this podcast? Well, when you study Joshua and when he's taking the promised land, he's going to end up running two campaigns, one we call the Southern Campaign and one the Northern Campaign. And when Joshua finishes the Southern Campaign, they're going to kill nine kings. And all of those kings have particular name meanings that uh, that they go through. And um, and then he's going to get into, once he completes the Southern Campaign, he's going to go to the Northern Campaign. And the, the number one king that he's going to deal with, his name is Jabin of Hazor. Now hear this, his name, Jabin of Hazor, who is over the remaining 20 kings, means Jabin means discernment or wisdom, but Hazor means castle. And so when Bond effectively is going in to kill Ernst Blofeld, his arch nemesis, the one who has established the Spectre organization, he in effect is taking out the one guy who is typified by this Jabin of Hazor in the castle that stands for discernment and wisdom. That is to say that these remaining 20 kings are taken out when the castle is defeated. Now, in this podcast, and when you read the, the novel, if you ever have read it or you do read it, one of the things that just really ended up striking me that happens when he enters this castle is he hears this song that's being played called The Ride of the Valkyries. And when I was reading it, I, I thought there's something really going on here. And I, and I wanted to like dig into, you know, what is this Ride of the Valkyries about? And so I don't know if you've ever heard the Ride of the Valkyries, but let me just give you like some background on this. The Ride of the Valkyries is a popular term for the prelude to Act Three of Die Valkyrie. It's the second of four operas by German composer Richard Wagner that comprise The Ring of the Nebulons. The Ring of the Nebulons is a sequence of four musical dramas based on the Norse saga, which concerns the turbulent family history of a race of gods and their pursuit of a magic golden ring. It began as a single opera focusing on the death of Siegfried, but it grew into a vast cycle of four operas comprising the Das Reinhold, or the Rhine Gold, Die Valkyrie, the Valkyrie, Siegfried and Die Goddardemrung, the Twilight of the Gods. The whole performance, or the entire cycle, was completed in 1874, and it was the first complete performance of The Ring, that took place in 1876 at a festival in a theater especially designed for the production by Wagner. And the opera ended up having immediate success. And so uh, the, the, the main theme of the Ride of the Valkyries itself was first written down on a loose sheet of paper by Wagner in July 23, 1851, and was fully orchestrated by the end of the first quarter of 1856. And so... It starts out that these uh, warrior maidens are raised by the god Woten, and they're riding back from battle before they gather on top of a of a mountaintop. Now, my interest in it, and I, I want to go into just a little bit here, is is that this again is 
and hear this, this is a sequence of four musical dramas based on a Norse saga, and it's about the turbulent family history of a race of gods and their pursuit of a magical uh, golden ring. And so this song, The Ride of the Valkyries, is playing when uh, James Bond is going to enter into this castle and to get revenge from his arch uh, nemesis. And he's going to seek to um, take his life and Irma Bunt's life, who was a, is a Russian uh, agent that worked for Smirsch, which was an organization in Russia that was after killing spies. It, was, it meant uh, death, death to the spy. Now, so when I when I was reading the book and I and I saw this, the Ride of the Valkyries, it immediately took me to uh, a film that was done with uh, Tom Cruise in it called Valkyrie, and Valkyrie was a plan that was put in place by Hitler in the time of the uh, Second World War that basically put a protective detail in place in case their security broke down. To protect Hitler, you know, that center feature that he was in as a dictator, Valkyrie was that planet that was put in place uh, for a whole protective guard to come around him just in case they were overtaken. And what in the film, the Valkyrie, the Valkyrie film that Tom Cruise did, what they decided they were going to have to do to get at Hitler, and this is a true story, it ends up failing, not ultimately, but it fails in their implementation is if they if they they end up using the program of Valkyrie to get to Hitler by having him sign off on a change of orders within Valkyrie so they can penetrate uh, his basically system or castle or protective guard that was placed around him and uh, in you know in the film it's a very good film and I, I think you should probably see it is this idea of penetrating a, a place or a force that is bent on murder by a tyrant. So with that being said, Valkyrie is something probably N. Fleming is familiar with, possibly because N. Fleming was in the naval side of intelligence, and he's probably, while he's coming into these books, he's familiar with Valkyrie. So when we hear this ride of the Valkyries playing when James Bond is entering the castle, as get this, he's a mute, so he has to be quiet. And number two, he's lost his bargaining power. So he's got to go into this place where uh, Ernest Shatterhan, well, Ernest Blowfield Shatterhand has built this whole castle for the purpose of people coming to take their life and commit suicide. Because what Blowfield is really about is he loves to see lives taken. He wants to destroy lives and and Bond is seen as a liberator here. He's going to liberate this island of Japan. And the reason why people were taking their lives in Japanese culture, and you have to understand the path of, of the samurai, and you have to understand the Japanese culture. And, and if you want to understand that, there's another good film that can help you to come into some understanding. And, of course, you can do literature and reading. But The Last Samurai, that was also done uh, by Tom Cruise, is a good understanding on the culture that's surrounding like a samurai code because there's this loyalty that is so high uh, among uh, the Japanese and for the emperor. They see the emperor 
uh, in that day, they saw him as a living God. And anything that comes against that living God, their emperor, they placed themselves all the way up, and especially the samurai who were for thousands of years were defending the emperor, they would take their own life. This is in Japanese culture. would take our own life and kill myself before I would allow myself to be seen as a failure. And so the penetration of this castle uh, by James Bond is this idea that if my life doesn't have meaning and purpose or if I've somehow failed in my duty to as a Japanese citizen, now, you know, the villain is given a place where he, you know, you can go in and you can take your life and no one has a no. And so Blowfield has got all the poison plants all over the world and he has them all growing in this castle environment. It's, it's interesting to me. This is the exact same castle that's used in uh, the movie The Last Samurai uh, to be seen because it's where the emperor dwells. Now, and this is where I want to really start to dig into the mechanics of what's going on here and what's going on with this podcast. Uh, some of you, you've heard of Freud. You know, he's a popular psychologist, and uh, a lot of people have learned from him. And I'm not advocating, literally, I'm not advocating for any of these films or Freud necessarily because I'm an advocate for the Word of God. But again, I, and, I, and I made my point that culture sometimes and mythology and narratives and and what's happened in our history are telling us stories and so i'm making an attempt here to take uh, james bond which is pop uh, popular literature item tied together historically with something that really literally happened and take the genre of film and of poetry and tie it together for you here and not just that but what has been done in the ring in wagner's intention of this great work of art that's fusing music, drama, poetry, and stagecraft into an invisible whole. There's my attempt in this podcast, and I hope I can do a good job with you to try to bring various different aspects together here and say that there's something really conspiring at the castle. There's something that's really, there's a conspiracy, so to speak, that is conspiring against us. And there's something that we really need to look deeply into because I, I believe that the Lord wants to bring liberation, but we need to be very aware of what is actually going on in our culture and in history. Um, you know, those who are not students of history are doomed to repeat it again. It is my hope to, that you take this podcast seriously and realize that we don't want to keep repeating the same thing generation after generation that is really functionally going on in this these set of narratives that, that yes, you have to dig in, and, and I would recommend that you do. And you need to dig into the literature, dig into history, dig into the poetry, dig into the music, uh, go deeper into the drama, go deeper into the mythology and the staging of this, and see how it measures up against God's Word. Because really what we're getting down to here is and we'll try to, to start to build a premise. There is a philosophy that sits behind all these stories and all these aspects that I'm looking at. There's a philosophy of how am I going to choose life and how am I going to choose death? And I want to address this because this is so crucial that you and I get this and understand this because 
I want to just say this from the uh, psychology of what Freud found out. Freud found out that everything that was motivating our brain's actions, and I mean, he called it a drive that was influencing our let's say our nucleus accumbens and let, and let me just say what the nucleus accumbens is for a little bit that I just found out about recently in your brain the nucleus accumbens is the part of your brain that has dopamine and serotonin and dopamine is your pleasure center that's when you feel a pleasure that comes people are stimulating dopamine in various different ways and there's a godly way for dopamine to be stimulated and then also within the nucleus accumbens, there's another aspect of it that stimulates a hormone called serotonin, and that is for control and self-control. And I am no, you know, I'm not a doctor, and so I'm not, I can't go into every detail like a professional could, but just in short, you have something that's helping you with, you know, controlling appetite, and then you have another one that's giving you pleasure. Now, those two influencers, they influence your, your feelings, those feelings influence your thoughts, and those thoughts influence your actions. Now, I'm, I'm kind of like one of those people that like to get down to the root of a matter. Um, my wife and I both are like that. So Freud discovered that with the nucleus accumbens and the amygdala, which I've talked maybe about this a little bit before in another podcast, but that's your intrinsic or neurotic fear drive. That means that things that haven't happened but maybe could be causing you to be anxious. It also in, influences another aspect of your brain called the lateral, the malice, I believe it is. And that influences a number of aspects of your, like for instance, rage or um, uh, love or extrinsic fear, meaning that if someone's the fight or flight responses. Now, before all of those things I just mentioned, there's an influence before those that Freud discovered, and he called it the that people generally chose two areas called, the, and it was called the Freudian drive. And the Freudian drive, he said that people either chose to live or to die. Your brain and my brain is all being influenced by what Freud said was a life and death drive. I want to take this to scripture now because Jesus says, because Jesus is very interesting in the philosophy that stands behind your brain, what drives you and affects your dopamine and serotonin levels and, and the restoration of your mind and your, and your will and how that those dopamine and serotonin levels and your fear levels, how they're influencing what you do every day. You're it's going to influence your emotions, it's going to influence your thoughts, which is going to influence your actions. So let's get back to the very beginning of this and say, what position should I be at whether I choose life or death? Now, if we say, well, of course you should choose to live. Or let's say that, of course you say that we should die. Now, in the case of what's going on here back at the castle, with James Bond, people are deciding that their life isn't worth anything, so they want to commit suicide because they've lost face in some way or their loyalty hasn't measured up. And so you have this whole culture of suicide, and we we know that something's not right about that, that you're not supposed to take your own life. And uh, I think people, you know, intuitively, and we realize that. Now, Jesus is going to talk about this, and he's going to say that if if you try to find your life, you will lose it. 
But if you lose your life, now hear me, if you lose your life, he says this, and we've got to make this very, very clear, for my sake and the gospel, you will find it. Now, if you're in your life, if you're living your life and you're saying, well, I know that I'm supposed to walk in self-denial, which is an aspect of losing your life. But you can walk in self-denial like, let's say, Gandhi did, but not even have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is making clear that if you choose the death drive, and I'm going to advocate for that, I'm going to advocate for what Jesus' words are, that we should choose to lose our lives for his sake and the gospel. Now, how do you do that? Well, first off, to lose it for his sake means he has to be Lord of everything. It isn't taking Jesus as Savior and not taking him as Lord. He has to be Lord of everything. And that means he's in charge of your life. And then he says, and for the gospel, and I believe that is now putting the second commandment in, in, in its rightful place, that for the gospel, that means to advance the gospel, that it means to advance the, the kingdom of God forward and how it affects other people's lives. So you lose your life for my sake, first commandment, and for the gospel, second commandment, you will find your life. So if, if you're struggling with meaning and purpose and uh, trying to find out who you are, then the only way for you to go about it is to choose the death drive, but don't choose it to the path of a fault which could lead to suicide like what's happening in this castle, but choose to say, Lord, I want to make you Lord of my life and I want to extend your gospel of your kingdom to others and listen, you will find who you are. You will find who you are in Christ. Now, there's another whole side of this, people who are choosing themselves in regards to life. And there's a lot of self-help stuff on this that's going on all over our culture and the philosophies of men, and people get satiated on what makes them feel good. Um, Nietzsche wrote deeply about this, that we were just basically like all these different organs, and we were supposed to just give ourselves to whatever we desire. Now, if you do that, if you just go and satiate yourself on yourself, most people that do that, and I heard a story of some life coaches and they just, they had this whole mentality, I should be able to do whatever I want. I don't come under any moral obligations. I don't have to follow any principles. I just give myself to any longing that I have. They both committed suicide because it never leaves you to life. You never, you never find life by going to find your own thing and basically pour out your life on whatever makes you feel good. You, you will never feel good. It doesn't matter how much money you spend. It doesn't matter how many parties you go to, it doesn't matter how many drugs you take, it doesn't matter how much of whatever that you do, if you go to try to fulfill your own life, it will leave you feeling bad. And so now there's another aspect of this. Jesus says, choose life. He says, I want you to choose life, but he tells you how to. He says, this is the way that you do it. You choose life by losing your life for my sake in the gospel, you will find life. Now that we have the soundly, the philosophy here, what you see is you see that there must come a liberation of this castle. Now, what's going on in this castle? Well, there's a, there is a problem with us and people wanting to be God. There's this deep inherent issue going on inside of men 
that wants to be in charge. And some people have went so far as to become villainous about it because the way that they can be God, and this comes from Satan, the way that I can actually rule is by taking as many lives as I can and snuffing them out. Because the only way I can derive satisfaction in my God-likeness is to take life. And this is the whole function of the dark side. This is the whole function of that. And so what happens in this is it builds a tyrant. And Hitler was, you know, for us, and also you're going to see this with Mussolini in Italy. You're going to see this with Lenin. You're going to see this with Stalin. Is the only way for me to really get satisfaction now is in myself is to take life. And surrounding this is this whole ride of the Valkyries and this ring. There's this ring, and this is what the subject of this today, because I want to uh, get into this, and, and I, and I want to talk about, talk about this. Now, because um, we're going to go to Haggai chapter 2. Now, in Haggai 2, the Lord's going to speak through the prophet Haggai, and he's going to ask the following questions to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, and the governor of Judah, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoshadak. Now, with these two figures, Zerubbabel and Joshua, I believe that you have the figure of what we would call the Melchizedek order. You have Zerubbabel, who is a governor of Judah. He's Judean. He, he comes from a family of kings. And then you have Joshua, who was a high priest. And so they are representative of king and priest, or the Melchizedek order. And he's going to ask also the remnant of the people, who among you you survivors saw the splendor of this temple. How does it look now? Isn't it as nothing by comparison? And the temple that had been built by Solomon had been torn down, and these captives had come back to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild. And just a little bit of the background in Haggai 1, they had come in to rebuild the temple and the work of the Lord, to worship the Lord and put the worship of the Lord first and when they get when they get there coming out of captivity when they get down there the temple's in ruins there's no infrastructure there's no place for their kids to go to school there's no uh, markets uh, to stimulate for an economy there's rubble everywhere they're going to have the builders are going to have to build and one of the first kind of temptations that start to happen is and I don't know if you can imagine this that you come back down you're living in your grandparents maybe their old their house uh, let's just say the wife and the kids are at home. The kids are giving the mama uh, a hard time. The dads are like, well, let's all go over there and we're going to build and work on the temple. They come home at the end of the day and she says, where's the food? How are you going to take care of the needs? Like, well, I've been over there building the temple and, uh, and I've been trying to get all this rubble picked up. And she's like, yeah, but uh, the kids, there's no education system. There's no, there's no infrastructure. And uh, because they're back into a whole pioneering motif and uh, you know, if you've ever been into studying like frontiersmanship, it's very difficult because you're basically having to work all day just to stay alive. And this is what the mom's probably doing at home. The husbands are out there and they're on this noble adventure to build this big temple. And what ends up happening is they get very discouraged. And for 16 years, the men basically go back home and they build their own houses and they try to get the structure of their own families in some semblance of order, and then they say, let's go back and build the temple of the Lord. And now God, by the prophet Haggai, 
and Zechariah as a contemporary prophet and Ezra, they're all going to come on the scene. They're going to call the people back to rebuilding the temple and lay the foundation of the house of the Lord. And this is some 16 years later, and the Lord's going to say this through the prophet Haggai. You guys are paying attention to the wrong thing. You're building your paneled houses when my house is lying in ruins, and your money that you've had and your resources is like a bag with holes in it. Nothing's working for you, is it? You guys were called to come and build my house. And it's later on, Matthew's going to say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Then they're struggling because they're trying to take care of their own family needs when God's called them on a mission to build a place of worship that night and day that's going to bring glory to him. And out of that worship environment, God's going to take care of all the needs of Israel and help them reestablish infrastructure, you know, in a political way, in a, in a, a familial education way, and in their families, and put everything back in order. So the tendency here has been, i got to put what's important first for me and my family before I build your house. And God is saying through the prophet, no, build my house, and I'll take care of you and your family. And so Haggai's basically making a call to this. And now in Haggai 2 is saying to them, Take heart, all you citizens of the land, and begin to work, for I am with you, says the Lord who rules over all. Do not fear, because I made a promise to your ancestors when they left Egypt, and my spirit even now testifies to you. Just a little while I'm going to shake heaven, the sky, and the earth, the sea, and the dry ground, and I'll shake up all the nations. And they'll offer up treasures, and I'll fill my temple with glory. The silver and gold will be mine, says the Lord, who rules over all. The future splendor of this temple will be greater than the former times. The Lord who rules over all declares, and in the place I will give peace. Now, Haggai's calling to them this, and they're noticing that their economics are not working out. And I think this is a really hard thing to go through because... Uh, many people we believe that and we advocate for especially in this nation that because good men would put their family first and they would take care of their own families and yet God here through the prophet Haggai saying yeah you guys have done that but you're really not getting uh, the fruitfulness that you had hoped to see because you're not putting my house first I want you to put what what I've deemed to be important first and then I'll take care of you and so this is what's going on in Haggai 2. And so just I'll tell you what was going on in my life at this time when I was reading Haggai 2. We had we had went downtown Nashville and, and run some prophetic and intercession down there. And we were running prayer meetings. And, man, I, I think I must have lost another 30% of MZ Hop. I lost my executive admin staff. I lost my treasurer. I was losing some of our security and we were getting just slammed down there. We were running these night meetings. The worship team's getting hit. The building that we're in, the situation is not working out, and the enemy is coming at us. I mean, with everything that he had, it felt like. And I was growing weary. Uh, I think one day our finances were getting hit. Our family's just going through it. And uh, I decided that it was time for me to go back up to Saluda and lick my calf. Uh, as my dad says, if you uh, if you went up against something hard and it, it hits you hard, then maybe you come back and regroup. So I go back and we start running meetings in Saluda. 
and people are coming up and there's this old three-story building there and we're running meetings on the second floor and you got to understand we have witches coming into our meeting we got people coming in off the street i mean we're just we have people's stuff being stolen i mean it's 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 just was just hell to pay for our church and like i said most of my excellent staff my leadership team is dissolving people are getting angry with us with kara and i and so i'm just like man i just don't know how much more we can take and we're we're going after laying an abrahamic foundation for the nation the united states of america we're we're standing against abortion and we're running these profiles out and our worship team is just really hammering it in it's just amazing but the thing really just goes off the rails and i think i remember within like a almost a week period i think i took in 35 dollars i've got five kids at this time and i'm just like man i'm just getting choked out so i'm like i'm going back so we go back and we start running these meetings and and this is what happens one evening i'm at my t- i had a desk in my living room and i'm sitting at my desk and i'm just like praying and i'm asking the lord you know what do i do and and uh and i'm, I'm ready to advance on whatever you tell me to and and the Lord tells me, he's like, I want you, son, I want you to turn to Haggai 2. And so I was like, okay, Lord, I'll turn to Haggai 2. And I opened up my Bible. And uh, at that time, I don't even, I think it was 2013, had some, uh, we, I wasn't using a lot of digital devices. So I had my Bible that was given to me when I was first saved at the age of 18, uh, my life application Bible. And I opened up to Haggai 2. And I've got it opened up and I look down and it says this, and now the Lord spoke again to Haggai on the 24, 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I am ready to shake the sky and the earth. I'll overthrow the royal thrones and shatter the might of these earthly kingdoms. I'm going to overthrow the chariots and those who ride them and horses and their riders will fall as people kill one another. On that day, says the Lord, who rules over all, I will take you Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, my servant says the lord and i will make you like a signet ring for i have chosen you says the lord who rules over all well interestingly enough and maybe it'd be unbelievable to some but i had been prompted of the lord that night to watch lord of the rings all three of them and i have never seen them through or seen them in a complete series i think i'd seen one of them return of the king part of it but i'd never seen the whole series on lord of the rings so I, I got up on my screen and I had, I think I had like an Amazon account and I think we had Amazon Prime and you know, like I said, I didn't have a lot of funds, but um, they were offering it that week, $3 to watch all three of them. And I had enough money to purchase the $3 on the Lord of the Rings. And so I'm, uh, again, I'm just sitting at my desk and the first one comes on and it's telling the story of the ring. And I'm, uh, you know, sort of tran- transfixed with this because I had just read Haggai 2 and my Bible's opened up and now I'm watching this Lord of the Ring and uh, it's telling this story about the power of this ring and, and, uh, and what it was for and the, the quote on the ring. And I'm going to pull this up because I want to read this to you. And so on that, the, this ring that's being translated at the beginning of this film, it says... Uh, it's in this language and and there's this inscription on the inside of the ring and it says one ring to rule them all one ring to find them one bring them all 
and in the darkness bind them. Now, what happens next literally blows me away. I look back down at my Bible, and sitting right on top of Haggai 2 on my Bible is a golden ring. It's sitting there. It appeared out of nowhere. And in the inside of the ring is this inscription that is in this film. And I mean, I think I think this must be at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, nobody's up. My kids aren't up. Uh, Kara's in the bed. And I'm like, no way that this literally is happening right now. I pick the ring up and I'm looking at it. And I look down and there's the same inscription that's in the film and I'm watching it. So I back it up and I watch it again. And I was like, Lord, I mean, what is this about? I was just blown away. I mean, I don't know how else to even describe it. And I, I was just sitting there at my desk, 10, 10 to 11 o'clock at night. The Lord prompts me and he's like, and lick, I've licked my wounds at downtown Asheville on this national apostolic move to see our nation turned over. And the Lord's saying, I'm going to bring this Melchizedek order into place. And and we've just went through so much. You know, I, I cannot tell you the trials our family we're facing. I, I, I can't even give credibility to them by even verbalizing them, but it, we're just going through hell, it seems like. It's just coming from every direction. And, and the Lord is starting to speak to me out of Haggai 2. And I, and I said, Lord, what, what are you trying to say? You know, because now here I am with this ring sitting on my Bible on Haggai 2. I'm watching the Lord of the Rings, and what are you trying to get at? And, and I, so I look back down the passages. I will take you says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. And he's saying that to this Judean Zerubbabel. It's, it was used also to describe Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, say, try to say this the right way, uh, in Jeremiah 22. In Jeremiah 22:24, he says, As surely as I am the living God, you Jehoiachin, King of Judah, son of Jehoiakim, will not be the earthly representative of my authority. Indeed, I will take that right away from you. I will hand you over to those who want to take your life, of whom you are afraid. I will hand you over to the King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his Babylonian soldiers, and I will force you and your mother, who gave you birth into exile. You will be exiled to a country where you neither of you were born and you will both die there. You will never come back to this land to which you will long to return. This man Jehoiakim will be like a broken pot someone threw away. He will be a clay vessel that no one wants. Why will he and his children be forced into exile? Why will they be thrown into a country they know nothing about? O land of Judah, land of Judah, land of Judah, listen to what the Lord has to say. The Lord says, Enroll this man in the register as though he were childless. Enroll him as a man who will not enjoy success during his lifetime. For none of his sons will succeed in occupying the throne of David or ever succeed in ruling over Judah. You really have got to know your biblical history. But what's happening here is 
the tribe of Judah in that day, who was given the kingly authority that came, you know, that came out of Jacob, they had become so corrupted and idolatrous and adulterous and turned from the Lord that they were losing their seal of authority in the land. And Jeremiah is being sent by the Lord, and he goes through a number of kings, and they have these three big turnovers. It talks about this in Ezekiel, where there's an attempt to bring the kingship into uh, godliness, but the kings are they're they're focused on the wrong thing. They they get now. This is the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already been taken into exile. The southern kingdom is going to go into exile, into Babylonian exile, because of their idolatry and their adultery. And Jeremiah is given this responsibility to prophesy against that kind of king because the Lord, he has an idea of the way he wants kingship to look. And, uh, you know, I deal with this in other podcasts, but he wants to wash the tyrannical nature out of kingship. He's, he has these ideas like back in Deuteronomy 17. It, he talks about being the husband of one wife. These kings had got corrupt. They had left the premise upon, they had divided the nation because like the king uh, after Solomon, the nation divides it, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, it splits the entire kingdom because they basically were using their authority to oppress the people. And the Lord wanted the kingship, like it spoke of David. He said, I exalted you to be king for Israel, my servant's sake, not for his own sake. And God blessed the king, but he had used him to exalt him to kingship for Israel, that he would not be impersonal anymore. And he wouldn't have a functional dominance in himself to use his power in a wrong and manipulative way and that his his authority that he was receiving from God would be used to bless and to liberate the entire nation into to the knowledge of God. And David was a beautiful king, but this thing had got so bad down the bloodline that the Lord is finally done with it because he's going to bring a king, you know. Jesus is going to come and he's going to show what true kingship looks like and the liberation of true kingship. So he's saying in this, this ring seal is worn by a king or another important person used as his signature. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiachin. God once pronounced that none of his immediate descendants would rule, but here he's reversing that judgment. Zerubbabel He's never ascending to a lofty position of rulership in the sense of a king, but he has a governorship. And the Lord is starting to take this Zerubbabel who is a governor, and he's starting to elevate this place again or a prototype of the Messiah who's going to sit on David's throne. And so when I'm sitting here, sitting there that night, and the Lord's saying, I'm giving position of authority again and this is really there's a really big moment for me and he tells me that night he shows me a bunch of dates and their hebraic dates and things and he shows me on this certain date you go back to the fire department with mz hop and you start prophesying my reign i'm going to lay the foundation in this nation now for this house because i am building a governmental house um, and some of you, like, you got to listen to some of my other podcasts, but I'm going to lay in a government in the nations of the world, and I'm going to begin this transition for the millennial reign. I, I believe that 
that he is getting us ready for a transitional government and it uh, that we're to we're, there's many ministries like this I believe all over the earth in nations I believe some of you may end up here in this podcast and you have similar experiences but the Lord is preparing our nations to transfer over and here's the seriousness of this I mean because I believe the Lord is breaching the castle so to speak in our own heart and in on our own mind and he's testing us and trying us and he's wanting us to get to a place where you only live twice the once when you're born but now we got to look death squarely in the face you know he's going to say this in in revelation that paul is going to say this you know that they overcome the enemy in revelation by the blood of the lamb the testimony of jesus they didn't love their lives what to the death and then you know paul is going to say oh death where is your sting it's been swallowed up in victory and i think many of us that are being brought along this path and i hope this is a huge encouragement for you that you, that you would say you know lord breach the castle breach the castle of my soul that has set up a false idol of kingship in there take out the king and dethrone the godlike emperor, just like what was happening here in Japan, dethrone the emperor. Dethrone, you know, like in this case, like Lord of the Rings, what is it, Saron. Dethrone this, dethrone my man-centered ideology in my own life and may you sovereignly rest as king over my life. That you are Lord. That you're the only rightful one to govern my life. And that your blood has purchased a transition of true kingship and godly kingship. Test my heart and see me, Lord. Try me and see if there be any unclean way in me. Purify me with hyssop. Purify my heart and turn my heart uh, towards you. We've got to look this thing squarely in the face, this thing of death. And we've got to say that ultimately we trust you, Father. That no matter what happens, we want you to get at the bottom, the root of this. This happened, you know. This is happening right now, and uh, I, and I know, like I like I said, I was licking my wounds bad. I, I mean, I was in the middle of some. I had said, I I remember the night when we closed out our last meeting there. I felt like Peter's like, and I and I had literally said this on my mouth. I will die for you, Lord. I tell you what, you will not pull yourself up by the bootstraps in this move. This move of God is not by might, and it's not by power, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord. Zerubbabel, later on in Zechariah 4, he's going to bring forth the capstone. I'm going to have a podcast called Capstone. He's going to bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace. I mean, that's going to be the shout and that's to be the shout. That's that's breaching the castle. That's overcoming right there is with the shouts of grace, grace. I really pray that you get a hold of this podcast. I, I hope that you see the the tyranny of the enemy and how he has tried to bait so many of us to not choose the path, the path of losing one's life for the Lord's sake in the gospel. And that it could never lead us to true to true life unless we uh, came come in alignment with that. I believe there's also possibly, and I don't know how the words determine these things, but he may have different ways of encountering you. 
you don't want to miss these opportunities where the Lord may may be saying to to many people right now, I'm calling you my signet ring. I'm calling you someone who I'm going to place on you authority. I'm calling you my servant. In The Last Samurai in the film, and I just close with this, what you end up finding out about what samurai means is, is very significant. But samurai means the Lord's servant. And so we need that kind of quality of, I mean, deep loyalty to the Lord and to his cause. Is my prayer in closing, Jesus, I just, you know, I just ask you, Lord, that you would give us grace for a deep, deep loyalty to you. That, Lord, we wouldn't, like, compromise what you have given us an assignment for. That we wouldn't let anything sneak in on it and try to subvert the cause that you've placed us in. Lord, we, we pray and we know that our loyalty is not based in our own ability. It's not based in how we sign up where we recognize your need for grace. Lord, we, we ask you for that kind of motivation to go into the enemy's camp and come out with a victory. We pray that, Lord, that we would look death squarely in the face. When it looks like everything is on the line, maybe for some of us, Lord, is it is our, our, our spouses, our relationships. Maybe some relationships are trying to tell us not to follow you. Maybe people don't understand what we're doing. They don't get us. And, and many people can't. But we just ask you, Jesus, that you would bring us into, like, just this uh, sense of, like, deep overriding communion with you. Lord, that we wouldn't concern ourselves with what other people think about us, but where we would make you Lord of everything. And where we just, we also ask you for the grace, Lord, to not just make you Lord, but to extend the message of our assignment where you have placed us of the gospel. Or we thank you that out of that we find ourselves. I pray for these kind of significant moments. Or that some of us, maybe in our greatest moment of what appears to be our greatest moment of travesty, may be the greatest reveal that we've ever had. I thank you that, Lord, that there are these signet ring moments for all of us. I pray that you would bring a reality, a prophetic revelation to those who are going on the line for you. That after dunning all to stand... And as you answer our accuser, that you would bring a deeper understanding of who we are. In your name we pray. Amen.
And our eyes have been on 